so one of my first projects in 3D printing was the 3D printed mouth guard. So that's still my baby. <laughs> so my name is Danielle Glasberger-Benning, a really long name, I know, at DSM Additive Manufacturing. That was Danielle, who is an application development specialist from DSM Additive Manufacturing, sharing one of her first and favorite projects, a 3D printed solution to mouth guards, making use of DSM Additive's Arnatel material that is perfectly suited to the purpose. This project was a passion of hers and saw through to qualifying this material for a range of new uses. And she still hears back from those who have stumbled on the project even now. And it's really funny to see how much impact that made. I think it was two years ago that we started with that. And until this day, there's still questions that are coming in, like how do you print it? And can you really put it in the washing machine and make sure that it still does what it needs to do? God is definitely one of my babies. I asked her what application development specialist means precisely. I'm literally translating application needs into material requirements, which is, if you translate it into a job title, would be application development specialist. And then everybody goes like, what? Which is a really long name for application engineer. <laughs> Danielle pushes the clients her group works with to rigorously understand the material requirements for their projects and have a plan for processing the materials correctly to achieve the intended result. For example, this project to solve an age-old sports medicine challenge with cutting-edge tech. This is where additive manufacturing actually starts having a gigantic impact on things that you initially don't realize because with these mouth guards as well, the cheapest one, the, the ones that you buy for five euros, you just heat them up, they're boiling bites. They're okay, but it actually comes down to how well it touches your teeth, whether it can do what it's supposed to do. Because if you can imagine if it's only touching your teeth on, on one small piece and it hits a ball, yeah, then you get a really high load on a small part of your teeth. So the bigger that area, the safer it is, which makes sense if you think about it. But initially you go into this like, is it really that special if I print it? But yes, it is because I can make it a perfect fit, which is also why they're so expensive at the dentist. So when you can speed up that process, it's... Uh Danielle has a background in mechanical engineering. She fell in love with working in materials during an internship at DSM and has dedicated herself to the field ever since. DSM is a material science and life science company. We have three quarters of the business in um, nutrition, so either animal feed or personal care. And then one part is in material science, which in a way seems odd, but that's how we've grown over time from actually coal mining to uh, petrochemistry to making the world a bit better for the future. DSM is a multinational specializing in material and life science with headquarters in the Netherlands and offices in around 50 countries across the world. Danielle told me that the last time she checked, DSM had 22,000 employees globally. DSM is actually the state mines. It was a mining company. And then the raw material was the coals to heat up either households or uh, factories or um, furnaces to make sure that things were running. And then that moved into petrochemistry and the raw materials. And nowadays we still do raw materials. I think a nice example is we're in uh, your daily nutrition with the biggest supply of vitamin C but also in your phone and in your car. So generally you use this on a daily basis, but you're not aware of it. <laughs> they have an extensive range of products, which includes an impressive portion of the world's vitamin C, animal nutrition, injection molding materials for electronics and mobility, and where we come in, 
Advanced Additive Manufacturing Materials. When did you start getting involved with additive? We're already doing it for 30 odd years. I, I always say 20 and then turns out that one of the first 3D printers in stereolithography had DSM material on there. So we have the track record from stereolithography. DSM has a long history in materials, among other things, playing a key role along with other titans like Shell in inventing the plastics industry that emerged from the Netherlands and Western Europe in the second half of the 20th century. And so it comes as little surprise that DSM even played a role in pioneering additive manufacturing itself, with DSM materials being used with those earliest commercialized SLA 3D printers in the mid-1980s. Flashing forward to today, DSM has transformed itself and its role in plastics a number of times, targeting high-value materials, high-performance, bio-based, and sustainability, among other pillars. And DSM Additive Manufacturing, formally launched in 2017, drew on two decades of experience in SLA and DLP technologies with its Somos resins to bring to the market an integrated business uniting developments in other departments and acquisitions that had expanded its range of AM technologies to include FFF, SLS, Multijet Fusion, Inkjet, and Binderjet. These days, DSM Additive Manufacturing offers a wealth of high-performance solutions across a range of 3D printing technologies, with focus on healthcare, transportation, apparel, tools, and electronics. This week, we ask, what can we learn from DSM Additive Manufacturing about how to better understand our project needs and the high-performance AM materials that might match them? What can Danielle show us about her application-driven approach? How she is squeezing the best performance possible out of these mysterious polymers? We explore these questions and more on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. How does adopting additive manufacturing benefit a business today? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to our second episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches on April 28, 2020, with three initial Dynamite episodes. We will launch new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. This week, Danielle explains how she approaches the process of translating application needs into material solutions. She offers insights into some of DSM's recent cutting-edge projects, which were made possible thanks to the company's portfolio of materials. Printed bridges and medical hand braces and Ducati engine parts and mouth guards, oh my. DSM additive manufacturing's materials are available for engineers and designers using open-platform professional 3D printers and are featured on Ultimaker's material marketplace. I sat down with Danielle Glasbergen-Benning, application development specialist from DSM Additive in her new office in San Jose, California, within Silicon Valley. We are in San Jose, and it's from DSM, sales office on the West Coast, one of the few. Uh, this is my new home Where base. Where was your home base before? 
Helene, for the south of the Netherlands. Danielle had only moved to Silicon Valley a few weeks ago and was still unpacking and getting to know her new area and new office. And so I think it was a pleasant reminder to look back at several of the major projects she and the team had helped to make a reality over her tenure at DSM Additive Manufacturing. But talking about the mouth card, you've shared photos of it in social media and this kind of thing. What brought you to that project? It was together with the company 3D Mouthguard. So they are an innovation and sports company and they do the software. So they do the scan of your mouth and then from there they generate a digital image of your teeth and from there they more or less subtract it from a, a digital mouthguard. And then once that's subtracted, that's when it's sent to a printer. So also when it comes to manufacturing on location and doing it digitally, that was one of the first projects that for me got, it's like, oh, so I can either put a printer down, add uh, a dentist or a club, and then they have all their teams come together, do these scans and have them printed. And then a day or two later, all the teams get their, their, their mouth Another cards. favorite project of hers was creating a part for a rebuild of a classic Ducati superbike. Yeah, I know. One second she leads us out onto the sports field, helping to solve sports medicine problems for soft, saliva-resistant, medical-grade materials to save the teeth of generations of field hockey players. Next, she is off to solve tricky problems on the racetrack. Amid the roar of the crowds, the sharp scent of motor oil twisting through the blasts of exhaust, RPMs ripping into the tens of thousands. Well, why not? She's the first to admit that she is the kind of material scientist who dyes her hair, races her own Ducati, and becomes addicted to power kiting. DSM works at the leading edge of the hard sciences and is also forward-thinking in its embrace of the badass women scientists who are reshaping the field of materials. What can you tell about that story? Yeah, just to see that piece on on a bike makes me happy. (laughs) Well, they actually had this custom piece that they made via CNC milling. It was made out of metal. You have a classic Ducati bike, which is retrofitted with the nowadays electronics. They went on a track. You go 200 kilometers an hour and faster. And in the corner, the electronics went like, we're not collaborating anymore. So therefore your throttle didn't work. So you can't imagine that you're leaning into a corner at 200 kilometers an hour and then your electronics and your throttle go like, nah, too many vibrations. We cannot cope with this. So that was the moment that they were like, okay, so the pieces that we have are causing disruptions in our electronics. So we need something that doesn't transform these vibrations into the rest of the frame. And that's how they ended up with 3D printing. Well, and that's that's sort of exciting because when you think about those kinds of challenges, you know, any sort of motorsports, people are usually thinking about, is such and such going to be strong enough, can handle the heat enough? But you were solving a very different problem with exactly the right uh, approach. She is often pulled into the projects of her colleagues as well to roll up her sleeves to apply her technical background and AM expertise to contribute towards their solutions. How about another one of the recent collaborations, the uh, the hand brace uh, project? Yes. It's uh, together with Twicket. And so you have your brace, you have your scan, and then on one end you have your flexible material, Arnitel, but that you have to print and then the sleeve, the design that is made with Twicket and also gives the, the actual function comes out and that has been printed and then you put them over one another and Twicket has the design so they can redesign. Uh, we come in with the material solutions and then Ultimaker comes in with printing oh, and the machines. Oh, what a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it, it seemed yeah. like a really neat uh, project because... Um, Again, it was an example where the results seemed to really match 
uh, the need in a very specific way. It's sort of interesting to see the material and design and, you know, digital driven, but physical result. And even cooler because it's humans, it's own people. So therefore you actually have to customize because to be fair, I mean, your hands, my hands, my, it's all different. And if you can make something for a child compared to somebody who's just what Michael Jordan uh, is height, then it's cool to see how these kind of things really scale and how you can still leverage them with, <laughs> with 3D printing. <laughs> so Danielle has shown us solutions for better fit to save the dental futures of sports players, counteracted extreme electronics killing vibrations on motorcycles, cornering upwards of 200 kilometers an hour, and has shown a medical assistance technology where two dissimilar materials press against each other to provide the perfect tailored to the patient hand brace. So, what is next? Well, t- tell me more about the bridge project. I saw people standing on it at Formnex. Well, how did that come about? It came about from a colleague. So I'm actually stealing his fame right now. <laughs> so he had this vision together with Royal Hoskoning. They were looking into sustainability, 3D printing. But yeah, it needed to be strong because literally you want to walk over it and you don't want it to break while you're walking over it and get casualties. Um, On the other hand, they also saw that the things that are there aren't sustainable and there can be a better way of renewing these things. Cool thing is Royal Hoskoning does a lot of engineering themselves. So it wasn't like we came in like, hey, we have this material and this is how you should design it. It's like, no, we had some ideas because we were already doing typology optimization, CIE about our materials. And they had the functional bridge knowledge and the engineering about it. So that's more or less where we combined material and the engineering on the material side with the construction engineering side, and then combine it, get a big printer, print it. Uh, So where is that project right now? Proof of concept seems to be pretty solid. Are are they going to make a bridge? Uh, I think they're actually going to make a few bridges in the Netherlands and they're going to be deployed. Yes. I, I don't know how many exactly, but I have seen some reports internally going like, oh yeah, this is going forward. This is, uh, it wasn't a nice one of technically you can do this. Yes. No, they really, really going into this also with the, the Dutch government. So, uh, and would moving. you be willing to talk a little bit about the, the optimization and analysis side of that? how you match the right material properties and mechanical solution to make it appropriate for polymers to be in a role that people associate with concrete and metal and wood? Um, Well, there's a few steps. So this is also part of our digital platform. This was the use case that we used to make this happen. So on one end, you have a design of a bridge. Then you get um, the whole idea of okay, what are the load cases? How much force is going to be exerted onto the bridge? Which direction do they go? From there, you go into typology optimization, really making a unique structure, different kind of structures within the boundary of, uh, well, we printed some smaller pieces on an S5. So yes, you want to be able to print it. Um, On the other hand, we had C, the granulate printer. So you have a specific size that you can print. And with each printer, in this case, with the... With the, the robot on, there's a specific tool path that you have to follow to make sure that you can build it. Because if it's a blob on the left and a blob on the right, yeah, at some point in time, you can imagine that the adhesion or at least the, the, the fusion between the layers isn't that good. So that's where then the, uh, the simulation with DigiMat came in. So hexagon, which we already 
did in the in the past and then you really start to calculate okay this is the design that i have so if i go through my g-code analysis and do the simulations on that which bridge would give me the one with the best results and from there you start to print then you run into some practical challenges and then you would have to redesign some g-code designs and then from there you get that actual bridge smaller piece and then first test is indeed if i stand on it what happens so that's always the the most exciting case in the end when you actually have a physical product that's when you stand on it and then okay this one works okay make it a big bit bigger so one of the first uh, designs that we had it was a, a generative design optimization came out and we literally put it in uh, a mechanical tester. So one of the tensile machines, we just pushed on it and see what happened. And then you have these small piece of, what is it, 20 centimeter bridge, 3D printed. And then it can withstand 50 kgs of force. And you go like, what, really? And it just collapsed on one of the, the ribs that we drew in. I was like, okay, this works. Okay, redesign. But that was really, really the early phase. And then when you see with the actual... A very very organic shape that they came up with which you don't see on the outside but if you make a cut through you see a very organic shape on the inside and that can withstand a few tons it's ridiculous how strong that bridge can be and how technically how light it still is <laughs> i was curious why beyond the obvious marketing urgency for achieving another one of those 3d printing firsts of something why was printing this bridge a good idea in the long run how can this kind of solution transcend the stunt to become the obvious choice, the way this kind of project should be solved. Danielle had excellent answers for this. The bridge that we made, it's gigantic, I know. But everybody goes like, why would you 3D print the bridge? Well, actually, if there's damage to a bridge and it's all out of one piece, yeah, you need to mill off the concrete, these kind of things. And it's debris that people then put in either in the soil or if you're lucky, then it's put in the asphalt or remixed with things. But actually, if you could make it from a polymer, then there's a specific piece that you just take out, a, a component. You just take multiple components out that are damaged and you put new components in. So also, therefore, you don't have to completely disassemble a gigantic bridge depending on what's damaged. So when you say that to people, it's like, oh, but that's interesting. So even though the bridge itself that you can print might not be that big, but if you put multiple ones next to one another, you get those are great stories. Thank you for remembering and sharing this. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's new 3D printing podcast. You might be wondering, why are we launching a podcast? And why are we launching this series right now? Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast was inspired by our company's mission to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. How will 3D printing affect the future of manufacturing, engineering, and design? Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Their key insights shape how we design our products and enhance our commitment to helping customers explore new and better ways to achieve their goals. Through these conversations, we hope to offer fresh insight into these new paradigms for the benefit of our listeners, our team, and our collaborators. And why now? Live events, trade shows, and seminars are not currently viable resources for leaders who are interested in adopting or extending 3D printing capacity. We hope that Talking Additive will provide an interactive avenue for our audiences to critically engage in the conversation around the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. 
Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show? Join the conversation about additive manufacturing at talkingadditive.com. Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, and we'd appreciate it if you would post a review wherever you prefer listening. In the early pre-desktop days of industrial additive manufacturing, there were few material choices and just a handful of color and finishing options. Even the information available about those materials was dissatisfying. Do you want draft yellow or strong red? What engineering properties do you have in lavender? While this is improving, there is further to go. When I spoke with Matthew Forrester for our interview for episode one, he revealed the light bulb moment when he learned that the details from material providers are often wrong or unclear. The other thing we do here is a lot of material science. We discovered that the materials that we can buy on the market and the technical data sheets are not necessarily to be trusted, which can be difficult when we're doing engineering applications where we need specific mechanical properties. Ultimaker's Material Alliance brings together many of those providers looking to overturn this antiquated attitude and replace it with trust and empowerment for their increasingly capable customers. So I have asked Danielle to take us with her to Material Science School for a deeper dive into learning how AM materials function, how they are made, how they can be leveraged for more and better performance. Don't worry, no dusty textbooks in organic chemistry. So how would you define a polymer? A polymer? Well, we can go by the Latin name of many monomers, but I'm not going to do that. Polymer for me is spaghetti, which is why it's just easy. (laughs) And then, yeah, you take your long spaghetti. That's the polymer chain or the molecular chain from there. But in the end, I I always compare it. I think that's a good image for people listening as well. How about thermoset versus thermo... Uh, plastic. plastic. And then maybe thermoelastomers as the third category? Uh, yeah. A thermoset is generally you make it once it's cured, either via heat or via uh, UV, it stays in that shape. One of the things that everybody knows are the rubber tires on your car or on your bike. Um, once you heat them up, it doesn't do much until they disintegrate. That's done. And the same thing goes for, I think, the, the PTOV coating that everybody has in their pants to make sure that their food doesn't stick. That's also a case of a thermoset. Thermoplastic is what you use for, for instance, injection molding, where you can heat up the material. It becomes, yeah, you could say from a solid, it goes into a liquid. And therefore, you can put it in any kind of shape, let it cool, and it keeps that shape. What also means if you heat it up, it goes back. So I don't know if you ever had a PT bottle of Coke and then you want to rinse it with hot water and you add it in and the bottle shrinks. Classic example of a thermoplastic. And then what about <laughs> the special case of thermoelastomers? Thermoelastomers, in a way, it's the same as the thermosets because most of the times you have two components, they mix and they set. The good thing is they become because they're already flexible, they become a bit more flexible, but in the end, they also disintegrate. And so also with the thermoelastomers, there's two categories. One is more linked to the thermosets, which tend to be either indeed a UV curable or two component system that you mix up. But for instance, a, a TPU, a thermoplastic polyurethane, is a thermoplastic urethane. So you have PU, polyurethane, which is generally the thermoset type, which, what's an example of that? 
the the sponges that you use to clean out your pan, these polyurethane. But on the other hand, the sport shoes, indeed the, the foam midsoles, that's a thermoplastic polyurethane. So tell me about glass transition, TG and TM. Glass transition and melting temperatures. So if you would look at your spaghetti again, there's a specific mobility that they have. So it would be like you're cooking and you're just tossing it around. So I'll go from melting point back. That's easiest. So when you melt something, it becomes liquid. So you have a lot of mobility and you can apply it and do a lot of things with it. And then when you start to cool down, you go below the melt temperature. It's a bit like making ice cubes. Where initially you have water and then you start to cool down and then you go to ice. So once you go into this ice phase of your water, that's what you would call your glass transition. So you get a solid uh, material. In the case of semi-crystalline materials, there's even additional phase crystallization temperature and that's the first temperature that your material solidifies and then your glass transition temperature is the that phase when it goes to that second flexibility in to make sure that i understand this and can convey it correctly to the listeners tg uh, glass transition there's not a magic number it's a range right yeah yes it's uh yeah and it depends some have a really sharp transition so then it can be like almost an instant, but generally you see it's, it's a gradual entrance. And some of them even might have, if you have a blend of a polymer, you can have multiple phases because there's each section of the blend, each component has a different glass transition temperature, even a different melt temperature. So you talked about semi-crystalline uh, materials. Would you also yes. mention what amorphous materials are? There's two classes, amorphous and semi-crystalline materials. And then crystalline materials will be the third category, but we're not diving into that one. A polymer you can see as spaghetti. You have some short pieces, some long pieces, and they're more or less intertwined. And generally everybody adds a bit of oil so that you get the, the spaghetti neatly out one-on-one because otherwise it's one big clump of food. An amorphous material you could see as that big clump of long spaghetti in your pot. It doesn't have any orientation. So if you get it out of the package, all the, the, the pasta is neatly oriented in that same package, that would be perfect alignment. So 100% crystallinity. And then any less alignment in there would make a polymer either semi-crystalline. So you have some pieces that are neatly aligned and some pieces that are that mingled up part. And then an amorphous material we see is exactly as the pot of spaghetti that you have. Do, do you associate <laughs> certain engineering properties to the two? Mostly we see that the amorphous material tend to be transparent, while the semi-crystallines, they can't. Because already when you start to get these blocks, once they start to hit a nanometer scale, that's when they start to reflect light. That's why they can't be transparent. Oh, that's fascinating. I actually didn't know that. <laughs> so now that we have learned some 3D printing materials basics, we will return to the core goal for our discussion. It's been exciting seeing you are launching materials that can be used by a wide variety of machines and seeing what that's like and seeing the kind of uh, storytelling around that. Uh, how has DSM approached the question of what kinds of materials to launch in the market and, and what, what are they seeing as the exciting results and verticals that those materials are touching? 
So for instance, take the polyamide 6, the Novamid 1070. The reason why we launched a polyamide 6 was because we had customers that we already had with injection molding come up to us like, hey, we use your own polyamide 6 for injection molding and we want to have that same material available for 3D printing. And we want to be able to do the exact same test that we do on a small scale for injection molding. So that was one of the reasons that we dived into there. So it's always a bit of a question and answer so on one end you want to be differentiating yourself and on the other hand you want to provide for the market so there's always this balance between customers asking for a specific rate and also looking into what would a market needs i truly believe that we're really really good at understanding applications and how our material translates into an application Uh, do you want to talk about what current offerings are in extrudable materials for our fff portfolio we have a polyamide six that's our Novamid 1070. That was the initial one that we launched. Polyamide 6 has a higher crystallinity, so therefore it's a bit of a pain to print. But if it prints, it gives you gorgeous pieces with really good properties. So we decided to come up with the 666, which is a Novamid 1030, which is also in your marketplace. So that's the, the, the easier to print cousin. Then we have that same material, so the 1030 with carbon fiber, which... What I always hear back is that your engineers love it, so that's good. (laughs) Carbon fiber material. Then uh, we have a PET, which is, of course, a semi-crystalline PET. The flexible one is Arnitel. We have two cases of that. So the really flexible one, which also has been approved for skin contact, you can technically make an implant out of it. And then we have our HD, which is the one that is suitable for higher use temperatures. Next to that, we're now coming up with our FR, which we recently launched, which is Flame Retardant, which was launched on the Ultimaker 5. It's Novamid AM1030 FR, and it has the first uh, UL blue card for filaments in open systems. How would you steer um, a customer in choosing between using a TPE, a TPU, and an an Arnatel? I would generally ask... Is your application in contact with, for instance, a surface? Would that surface be rough? If that answer is yes, that means that your material needs to be suited for abrasion. Therefore, it will be TPU. Is your application used in daylight? If yes, then TPU is generally less resistant to UV. It's less stable. It discolors. So then I would go for a TPE or an Arnitel. If there's a requirement for something that is in the sunlight and I need to have it sustainable, then I would definitely go for an Arnitel. <laughs> you have expertise in looking at the, the outcomes, what comes out and helping customers match the materials to those outcomes. At what point does your role step in? So when do I come in? That's always a good question. So far it's mostly when people are completely new to 3D printing, explaining what 3D imprinting entails, easy as possible way of diving into what is their need because if you would make a shoe you have completely different needs than when you need to put a piece under the hood of your car or when you want to put something in your mouth or as an implant that's completely different uh, properties i always try to go back to these questions in the environment and what we use it for it's easier to imagine that than specific small piece that goes in their car or in a phone say you would want to do a mouth guard okay I'm putting it in my mouth therefore it's in contact with saliva which means it cannot be poisonous because we don't want to kill people that's just a fair thing on the other hand what is the function that the mouth guard needs to be it's there for protection so if something hits your mouth 
okay, your lip will probably crack and bleed, but we want to make sure that your teeth don't fall out of your mouth. So then you go like, okay, so what does the material need to be? How can we obtain that? And then you go into the more specific things like, okay, which temperature, how sensitive is the material to uh, water because it's saliva? How sensitive is it to any of the uh, enzymes in your in your saliva? And does it need to have a specific stiffness? Is it need to be really, really soft? And that's where the designing and the tuning comes in. And in the end, the material needs to be safe. So therefore, we also need to tune in, make sure that we get all the tests ready, that the material is fit for purpose, as we call it. Okay, so then let's talk about your role in that equation. Uh, So when you're helping customers, potential customers, find the right material to solve something, what kind of conversations are you having with them? Question one is always, what do you want? (laughs) Question two, what does it need to do? Because you always want to know the environment that it's in and the needs that it needs to do in the end. That's where you start to get the puzzle pieces together. So for instance, environment, is it at freezing temperatures? Is it at really high temperatures? Is it thermoplastic? It can melt. So therefore you need to be aware of, can I use it at that temperature? If your pieces are next to a turbo and it's 150 degrees Celsius and your part is only able to withstand onto 70 degrees. Yeah. A customer wouldn't be happy with you for that. Mm-hmm. So it's always these kind of questions. And then if they already have a file, mostly it's either from blow molding or injection molding. Then you start to dive into like, okay, can we print this? This is a yes. Okay. We can print it. It will look like this, but it will be not as good performing as it could be. And that's where you generally start into like, okay, let's redesign. And that's generally where you see you can make a part lighter, but equally strong. (laughs) When you're printing stuff yourself, you have access to not only a lot of materials, but a lot of the knowledge about the core elements and how they're tuned. How do you select materials? First of all, question is always, will it print? because you can have any print material, but if it comes out and it's completely solid by the end that it comes out of the nozzle before you could even put the first layer down, it doesn't work. So rule number one is always, will it print? Rule number two, will it stick? Because we're printing with Ultimate, you're printing on a platform. So you can use adhesives, but if it doesn't want to stick to that platform, you can't do anything else. And then second, that same question always goes like, will it stick onto itself? So that's the whole layer to layer adhesion. Yeah, I would say those are the two basics. And then because I did polymer mechanics, my third question was always like, will it break? And then, okay, what would be properties be once you printed it? Because with some materials, you see that it's almost on par with injection molding. And with other ones, you see that you need to do some tweaking to make sure that the properties stay intact after printing. So when you were testing the mechanical properties, um, how would you break these parts? What kind of tools and what kind of things were you doing? First is always by hand. And I just fiddle around with it. And generally what you see, if you can pull on it, usually it's fine. You can bend it, usually it's fine, but then you twist it. And that's generally the weak point of any piece that you make. You just go like, uh uh-uh. And sometimes it's like, oh, this is actually fairly good. And you start fiddling around with it. You give it to colleagues. And then everybody has a tendency when you say, it's 3D printed. Oh, really? And then they want to break things. I don't know what it is with people, but they have this. It's like, okay, because if I tell you it's injection molding, you don't have this tendency. So why are we 3D printing? So generally when it passes the hand test, 
then you would generally go to tensile machines or bending setups, compression setups. And that's when you start to do the actual physical testing. But always first test is like hand test. <laughs> How did thinking about materials change once you had access to and were thinking about 3D printing? Uh, what I think the most interesting thing is when you think about extrusion and injection molding materials and processing, we have a lot of the same puzzle pieces, but with additive manufacturing, the puzzle pieces fit a bit differently. So you get a completely different puzzle with the same puzzle pieces. With injection molding, you have pressure. Now you can't really control the pressure, but you can control the speed. So therefore, indirectly, you control the pressure of the filament going through the nozzle. Then there's cooling time. So how long do I have to make sure that my layers are adhering, which would generally be with injection molding, how long do I have until my part solidifies so I can push it out of the mold? So these kind of puzzle pieces, they match, but they fit differently. Local manufacturing, to me, is sustainable because you're literally just sending a file over the world instead of trucks with material. The whole local thing, as in everybody will have a 3D printer in their home in the future, not so sure, but a centralized place, which is close by, maybe even next door, but not across the globe. And well, looking into digital, one of the things that we're doing is with the digital platform where you can actually get a file in, you do all the calculations and the simulations you do digitally. So instead of doing a complete DOE, getting parts and then it's like, oh yeah, it's not doing what it's supposed to do, toss it out. You're now already doing these steps digitally. So you're already increasing the speed in production because computers nowadays are going so fast, faster than we can print them. And you're just increasing your success rate because once you start printing it, you, know, you already know what it should do. Let's say sustainability is my most important factor. So I'd rather pay something more, but I make sure that it's 100% sustainable or recyclable. Performance is my requirement. So therefore I need to make sure that it's resistant for a specific temperature, but I care less about the sustainability. So that's also where you can discriminate in what you want for your product to do in the end. When we think about changes in the supply chain, we think yeah. about 3D printing as a technology really transforming the supply chain and allowing you to make what you need, when you need it, and where you need it. What mm -hmm. are some ways that you see the supply chain already starting to change for your customers now? And where do you think those changes will be in, say, 10 years' time? 10 years. Oh, good question. As far as I've seen so far, people are used to a specific way of processing. And now you give them more options and more flexibility and people go, but why, but how, how am I going to make this work? Overall, the most important question is always validation. Then they don't really care where you produce it, how you produce it. Once they're convinced about 3D printing, they don't necessarily care how you do it or where you do it. As long as it does for this. In general, how do you see manufacturing changing now moving in the digital domain? Oh, I think it's quite exciting. It's kind of funny how initially people went, oh, you're doing 3D printing. Yes. So you think you can replace injection molding? I was like, well, why would I replace that? I think it's a very good parallel. And I think that injection molding can do things that additive manufacturing can't do. But specifically, additive manufacturing can do things that injection molding can never do. And one of those things is really in the design. I mean, you can take any material, but I think that additional axis of freedom that came in, I think that's where the magic happens right now with 3D printing. We hope that you have enjoyed our second episode for the Talking Additive podcast, featuring the fearless Danielle and her quest to help designers and engineers 
better match their project needs with the high-performance materials to help them compete. I hope that we have all picked up useful insights on material science, applications-driven material strategies, and the changing landscape of AM materials. Our third episode is an interview with three key members of the Ultimaker team who will share knowledge and insights into the evolving role of FFF 3D printing in both manufacturing and design, and how it benefits businesses around the world. Enjoy our show. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing today at talkingadditive.com. Subscribe to make sure you will never miss an episode, and we'd appreciate it if you would post a review wherever you prefer listening. Thanks again to Danielle glassbergen Benning and the DSM Additive Manufacturing team for joining us. Thanks also to series producer Hanna Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, Thank you to Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound for the show theme and episode sound mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.